Welcome to Indefinable Magic. Random musings inspired by a TV show about a mad person in a blue box. Written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. This episode, words, words, words. Hello. I once had a sole Doctor Who magazine knocking about the house, and it had an article in it called Doctor Who Achieves. Funny phraseology that, I thought. No, no, it's not achieves. That doesn't make sense, and I know deep down that achieves is not spelt like that. But the word doesn't quite coalesce for me. What is it? I was young, by the way, still a boy. Words hadn't quite come together for me. It took ages to realise, for example, that Penelope and Penelope were the same word. The Ghost of Thomas Kemp by Penelope Lively was on the story-reading TV show Jack and Ori, or was it on the radio? I certainly encountered it, at least once. Oh, look, Jack and Ori, says the internet. So, the TV, read by Ronald Pickup. Ah, I wouldn't have known who he was in those days, one of our finest classical and TV actors, whose television debut just happened to be as the physician in episode four of The Reign of Terror. But that's a story for another time. Anyway, lo and behold, we had the book, The Ghost of Thomas Kemp, on a shelf in our house, written by Penelope Lively. Penelope. Penelope. I once asked a teacher friend of my mum's if Penelope was short for Penelope. That sounded reasonable to me. He looked at me as if I was an idiot. I checked with my mum tentatively some time later. She told me what I hadn't considered. That ridiculous spelling is how you spell Penelope. Oh, heck, no wonder people pronounce my surname Hodoki. But unless you're told a pronunciation, well, there was that oddness, for example, of that shop where my nan lived called Wahusmuth. Yeah, no, I couldn't quite get that. In another part of my brain, of course, I'd remembered people talking about W.H. Smith. Mum was always saying she'd pop in to W.H. Smith on her way back from work or whatever. But it wasn't until a light bulb moment, and after several years, on the high street, when I realised that the two were one and the same. I mean, I'd probably learn a few more words looking on the back of Doctor Who books inside a Wusmuth. Like on the back of the Target Doctor Who novelizations, where people were often determined to do things. Determined. Determined. That's not a word. What does it mean? One day, bingo. Determined. I determined. It was determined. But it took some getting to. One of the most famous and mocked word uses in Doctor Who history is the use of the word erstwhile. For some reason, we Doctor Who fans decided that erstwhile meant doughty, dogged, and the consensus now 
is because perhaps somewhere in the depths of Doctor Who magazine, John Levine's popular unit sergeant, Sergeant Benton, the very embodiment of uncomplicated loyalty, doughty, dogged, a Labrador in military fatigues, was once captioned in a picture on one of its pages, the erstwhile Sergeant Benton. Benton, you see, got promoted to warrant officer in Tom Baker's debut story, Robot, and so his status as sergeant was definitely, now, erstwhile. But fan writers seem to have let it soak into their bones that erstwhile, I mean, a word that frankly sounds like it's got something to do with being former or in the past, it's got the word while in it, for goodness sake, somehow meant hardworking or unflappable or whatever. Confession time, even I have succumbed to its usage. And, as an adult, with an English degree, I was given a narration script for a Doctor Who documentary to read, and it described your erstwhile producer, who had been daring and persistent and got some footage that less <clears throat> erstwhile mortals would have failed to get. As Gary Gillett pointed out in Doctor Who magazine at the time, in the words of Andre the Giant in The Princess Bride, I don't think that means what you think it means. Now, sure, I didn't write the script, but I didn't query it either, so I'm happy to take some of the blame and will join you in the ritual burnings of Day of the Daleks DVDs whenever you like. I cheekily messaged Gary Gillett at the time to say that actually it was to be Steve Broster's last documentary at the helm. He was moving on, so he was indeed an erstwhile producer. But that was retconning to the max, and we both knew it. And actually, I'm rather old-fashioned, and I believe that things put out by the BBC should be scrupulous. Words should be pronounced correctly, for example, so I feel very bad about that one. No matter how I might invoke low budgets and fast turnarounds, both facts of the DVD production schedule, there should have been someone in the chain who spotted it. Not least me. Despite the six-hour round trip and the short recording window, I'm sure Martin Luther King or Abraham Lincoln or Winston Churchill were under various constraints when they said some of their famous words. But we never had, we shall fight them on the beaches in an erstwhile fashion, or any such nonsense, did we? So, mea culpa. Interestingly, though, I was doing a radio play some years later, and a character was telephoned by their hard-working, loyal agent. It's your erstwhile agent here, said the character. <clears throat> I said, I don't think that means what you think it means. Oh, thank God a wordsmith like you is in the cast, said the producer. Of course, I confessed I only knew this because I'd made a similar gaffe a few years before, did I, Eck? I smiled modestly and took all the credit. But this is the thing. The writer of this radio play, a very skilled writer... I might add, was not a Doctor Who fan. Yes, shock horror, much of my professional life has absolutely nothing at all to do with Doctor Who. But she too had fallen for the erstwhile trick. So where had she picked it up? She didn't read Doctor Who magazine back in the day. Does the same mistake occur elsewhere in the pages of, oh, I don't know, NME, erstwhile Beatle drummer Pete Best, or the erstwhile lead singer of Genesis, Peter Gabriel, both well known for their solid dependability in a crisis. We Doctor Who fans 
always eulogised the word smithery of the tie-in Target novels that filled so many gaps between televised seasons and were our only gateway to the glorious past adventures of Ur Doctors. They got us reading early, above our supposed reading age, because a few long words weren't going to stop us getting our fix. The Doctor's pockets were capacious, great word, stored in my mental dictionary, yet, thinking now, I'm not sure I've ever actually used it. Well, I mean, I have now. But there are many words that will actually only ever be useful in Doctor Who circles and should never be uttered in the presence of a normal person. Howlround, for example, or Jabberlite. Howlround. Signal Howlround is the effect caused by pointing one camera into a monitor screen which produces the blobs that made up the swirling time shapes of Doctor Who's first title sequence. There's audio Howlround too. In fact, we got some the other day when I was setting up a Zoom commentary. So, you know, non-Doctor Who people use that word, but I've only ever heard it used in conjunction with our favourite series. No one has ever popped round to mine to borrow a block of Jabberlite, but okay, Jabberlite and Howlround, they are specific TV production-related terms, so it's no wonder the words are unfamiliar to those who've never read an instalment of the Doctor Who Achieves fact file. But there are definitely some actual words Doctor Who has given me, or at least it has made them stick, and I can't hear them without conjuring their Doctor Who location. Quintessence, for example. That's a great one, isn't it? It always makes me think of that fine actor Ian Hogg in a velvet jacket in Ghostlight. But actually, like a bus that's been to a posh school, it came around twice for me in quick succession. You wait ages for one quintessence. I was thrilled, you see, when the independent newspaper dived in at a time when Doctor Who was hugely and sloppily maligned in all corners of the press, all jumping over themselves to come first in a who-can-be-most-casually-dismissive-of-a-television-legend competition. In its write-up for part two, I think, of Ghostlight, the Independent described the episode as quintessentially splendid Doctor Who. So I asked Mum what that meant. It means the very top embodiment, she said, or something like that. And later that week, when the episode aired, Josiah Samuel Smith, played with swaggering relish by Ian Hogg, called his nemesis control a quintessence of wickedness, corruption incarnate. Oh, those are edible words for an actor to devour. And in a script, which is the equivalent of a cordon bleu menu for equity members, I was never entirely sure what was going on, but I was certainly happy to listen to the words as my comprehension took a detour. And, thanks to perhaps, I'm guessing, the independent writer unconsciously recalling what they had heard in the episode they had found so splendid, I knew what the bad guy was saying on that particular occasion. But, as we've established, we can all be a bit cloth-eared. I mean, I had many a misapprehension that lasted a good long while. What does rigor mortis mean, mummy? I asked her. When you're dead and you go stiff. Well, I didn't know that, but I did do now. Blimey. But also... Why would you sing a song about that? Well, it turns out that UB40 weren't actually singing a song about that, but my ears said otherwise, repeatedly. 
Apparently their song Food for Thought is one of the most misheard songs ever sung, sung but clearly with substandard diction by Ali Campbell. I was told a short while later that what I thought was I'm in rigor mortis was in fact I'm a prima donna, so I happily laboured under that misapprehension until decades later. I used to say you'll never believe it. I used to think he sang I'm in rigor mortis when of course he was singing I'm a prima donna and people would flash back that dead-eyed rictus grin that signals polite embarrassment. The words were actually Ivory Madonna. I mean, thinking about it, I'm in rigor mortis is probably not the gateway to the happiest of songs. Over the years, I've come across other mishearings of this particular song. Anne-Marie Madonna. I believe in dollars. I married Madonna. I'm a river donna. Reva, Reva, Roma. I mean, at least mine made some sort of sense. Tambourine for Dada. I mean, the thing is, they all rhyme with Ivory Madonna, and I don't even know what that means, to be honest. Presumably some sort of statue. But I had never otherwise heard of rigor mortis. So where that came from in the first place, I have no idea. But of course, wherever my knowledge of it came from, Rigor Mortis does feature in one of the great Doctor Who cliffhangers. Part 3 of Horror of Fang Rock, and the Doctor and Leela think a certain character is in his cabin in the lighthouse they have fortified themselves in. Then they find his body. Rigor Mortis, says the Doctor, he's been dead for hours. Leela, I've made a terrible mistake. I thought I'd locked the enemy out. Instead, I've locked it in with us. Cue music. Tom Baker's maudlin, quietly doom-laden performance and the conviction with which the whole thing is made gives me a visceral kick every time. And then, when the music fades, I start singing in my head. I'm a prima donna. Still wrong, but a different kind of wrong, which, if nothing else, shows that I can change. She complicated, opening lyrics to a song. She complicated and left me a mule to ride. Oh yeah, I heard that over and over and I sang it too and was convinced, even though actually it didn't make any sense at all. She complicated. She complicated? I, I mean, it's not even English. Years later. Nope, it's she caught the Katie. She caught the Katie. The KT is a sort of train. Well, it's the Missouri-Kansas-Texas train. The MKT. The KT. She caught the KT. Right. Then, even if I didn't know that, it still makes more sense than she complicated, which, well, doesn't make any. She caught the KT. Opening number of the Blues Brothers. A funny, sweaty, musical movie with obscene car chases. Then enjoying cult status, partly because... There was a rumour that the VHS had been deleted, so anyone who had an off-air copy, as we did, possessed audio-visual gold dust. Knowing about the unavailability of Doctor Who due to missing episodes meant that this idea, which I had never actually verified, and of course the VHS was later re-released if it ever had been unavailable, appealed to me. Might we have the only copy, albeit off-air and with adverts. Of course we didn't. There are loads. 
but the idea that priceless recordings could reside in someone's house. <gasps> but never mind the songs and the blues, brothers. I have a tank full of petrol. It's dark, and I'm wearing sunglasses. And what on earth have these mispronounced song lyrics got to do with Doctor Who? Well, I once shared a green room with the mighty Tom Baker, and I remembered him talking with great excitement about how Laurence Olivier occasionally gave odd stresses to words which made them sound peculiar and therefore more interesting. The example he gave was the name Beryl, which in Olivia's hands became Beryl. Baker was enchanted by this and talked in a bit more detail about words being given different emphases, and I thought back once more to the horror of Fang Rock cliffhanger. Just after the Doctor announces that their discovery has rigor mortis, he makes his next horrific deduction. The chameleon factor, he says, sometimes called lycanthropy. Chameleon factor? Chameleon? Now, we know he means chameleon. Later on in the story, he refers to a chemerly, a sort of flare pistol rocket thing, as a chamerly, so he can say it's an early chamerly, which sounds rather jolly on the ear. We know that Baker was in a pesky mood during the making of Fang Rock, so he may have been tossing these mispronunciations in to test the boundaries with director Paddy Russell, with whom he wasn't getting on, and that she let them go, choosing her battles. And whilst early Shemurli is a bit of fun, chameleon factor really is left field, but may have something of the Olivier's about it. It's not the only time Tom Baker mispronounces words, perhaps out of boredom, perhaps to keep things vibrant, perhaps to invoke his theatrical mentor and keep the audience provoked and surprised. His Tehran audience, you might say. But on those occasions, it's definitely an issue of pronunciation, not hearing, and thanks to the video age, we can rewind and realise that our ears aren't deceiving us. That said, these days, my ears deceive me for different reasons. I remember watching The Doctor's Wife with my deaf stepson a couple of days after seeing it on my own whilst in Edinburgh gigging. When we watched together when I got home, I understood it a hell of a lot better thanks to the subtitles, because much of the lovely dialogue which had been rendered unintelligible by the modern way of sound mixing, which seems to favour music and sound effects, was spelt out for me in legible writing at the bottom of the screen. Yeah, perhaps I'm going a bit deaf myself. Yeah, now it's not my unsure grasp of the English language, or an actor riding roughshod over the fineries of, you know, actual pronunciation, making sounds unfamiliar to my still-developing and continuously reforming neural pathways and language receptors. No, they've done all their developing. Now, it's my cloth-earedness due to entropy that's the real problem. Time's winged chariot. <laughs> it's blown out my eardrums with its flapping. But, you know, some famous moments of duff wordsmithery have been lovingly mocked by Doctor Who fans over the years. The space museums, have any of our arms fallen into Xeron hands, for example, is a great one. Up there with the wonderful one from the Edward film Plan 9 from Outer Space. 
Inspector Clay's dead, murdered, and someone's responsible. That reminds me of a, a beautiful one, indulge me, but hey, what is this podcast if not indulgent? In the first episode of Police Squad, the short-lived but glorious TV precursor to the Naked Gun films, Sergeant Frank Drebin apologies for questioning a widow so hot on the heels of her husband's murder. We're sorry to call at such a difficult time, he says. We would have called earlier, but your husband wasn't dead then. But, you know, Doctor Who has more great lines than bad ones, and yet one of its most celebrated stories has what many have decided is its silliest title, namely The Deadly Assassin. After all, he'd be a fairly incompetent assassin if he wasn't just a tad deadly. In fact, I don't think you can call yourself an assassin unless you've excelled in the deadly department on at least a number of occasions. Your deadly to non-deadly ratio must firmly favour the deadly. But still, never mind, it's Doctor Who, and in the same way that the erstwhile mistake is very much bespoke Doctor Who territory, you'll never hear such a word combo as deadly and assassin anywhere outside of Doctor Who. Until one day, in a random episode of MasterChef, or Celebrity Chef, or Celebrity MasterChef, or MasterChef the Celebrity Professionals, or MasterChef 6 Mission to Moscow, it was one of the MasterChefs, presenter Greg Wallace used the phrase... A deadly assassin. Is he a fan? Has that combination of words entered common parlance? Is it a phrase from something that I haven't read, but Greg has? Now, the latter is possible, though I hope unlikely, because being less well-read than Greg Wallace definitely isn't on my to-do list. But it could be. Perhaps deadly assassins from something else, because I have to confess that I only discovered recently that ambassadors of death is actually a reference to something else, as the phrase features in Edward III. It's not original to Doctor Who. Edward III is an anonymous play from the 16th century that has been ascribed, latterly, and at least in part, to one William Shakespeare. By this, the other that beheld these twain give earnest penny of a further rack. Like fiery dragons took their haughty flight, and likewise meeting from their smoky wombs sent many grim ambassadors of death. Then gan the day to turn to gloomy night, and darkness did as well enclose the quick as those that were but newly reft of life. So who knows? Maybe there's an Afra Ben play that refers to some underwater menace, a passage in Chaucer mentioning a missione to the Unconona, or there's a scientific concept known as a mark of the Rani. I don't know. I mean, I know who designed Frontier in Space, or the name of that extra there, or which episode of Bergerac that bloke was in, but I can't be expected to be across the important stuff. I mean, anyone can do that, can't they? Oh dear, my life. Have I? to once again invoke the cliffhanger to horror of Fangrock, made a terrible mistake. Oh, what a memorable cliffhanger it is. I'd call it iconic, that cliffhanger, but unlike the BBC Doctor Who Twitter account, which bandies the word about like it's going out of fashion, I know what iconic means, and it doesn't mean really good or something I like or something that makes me go, like, wow, man. I mean, it literally doesn't mean that. Oh, and don't get me started on the word literally, 
a word my children use literally every time there's literally a gap in literally any sentence they speak. Hmm. I don't think those words mean what they think they mean. Inconceivable. But anyway, the official Doctor Who account, a BBC thing, using language incorrectly. It's the BBC. That sort of thing wouldn't have happened in the old days. Under a previous regime, under former... I'm sure there's a word meaning former I could invoke here. Oh, never mind. Because look, as is the way with language, what will happen is that the more people misuse a word, instead of being corrected, they gradually make the misused word part of the English language. Only recently did disinterested, which is different from uninterested. If you are disinterested, you have no stake in something. If you are uninterested, you are bored. But disinterested had the incorrect meaning ascribed to it as an actual meaning in the dictionary. After years of getting it wrong, instead of have people correct themselves, they've just made the word mean the mistaken meaning of the word. Words. <laughs> they regenerate. Time's winged chariot once again, leaving me behind. Language. She is imperfect. She is ever-changing. Language. She complicated. And fascinating. Well, she's fascinating if you've had that fascination stoked by a silly programme about monsters and blowing up large buildings. So let's add a fascination with language to the list of the many things that Doctor Who achieves. Thank you for listening to Indefinable Magic with me, Toby Haydock. Doctor Who magazine, although it no longer runs the article called Doctor Who Archives, is still available in all good high street shops and also online. One of those high street shops is WH Smith, still going strong. Oh, and I don't think anybody really needs to get the Blues Brothers on VHS anymore. There are other mediums now. Inconceivable. The music for this podcast has been specially composed by Dominic Glynn. Please consider supporting these podcasts. You can do so at my Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Toby where you can subscribe and get extra stuff. Or you can do a one-off donation at Kofi, K-O-F-I, Kofi.com forward slash Toby Haydock. And if you give these five stars and a nice review at your podcast supplier's den, then that is also massively helpful. Thank you. If not, have a lovely day anyway, and I'll speak to you next time I'm blathering about something. Ta-ta for now. (laughs) 